This episode is sponsored by National Treasures Artists in Residence. National Treasures funds artist participation in artists in residence programs during their twilight years. They also forge mentorships so that expertise honed over years will be passed along one-on-one to a younger generation of artists and memorialized in a digital library. Visit nationaltreasuresair.org. On this episode, we have Mike Mizells. Mike began college at USC intent on becoming an artist. During the course of his study, he realized that his passion was more being a participant in the art ecosystem and not as an artist. He pursued a master's and a doctorate in art history and became a curator for a number of years at Wellesley College and then began an assistant professorship post at the University of Arkansas. He recently has been a visiting researcher at Harvard's Meta Lab, and while in Boston, he has completed an MBA at MIT's Sloan School. He is a published author with additional titles to be released imminently. His research interests focus on creativity, technology, and commerce. Mike, thank you so much for being on our show. My pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this. As am I. It's, you've got such a phenomenal background, and it's clear your passion for art and the arts um, uh, from multiple perspectives as an industry, um, as a pursuit of passion. I would love for you to share with us, Mike, what's your first memory of experiencing art? It's very funny. Actually, it's very distinct. Uh, When I was about probably eight or nine years old, uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art opened in Chicago, and there was a news story about, uh, you know, modern art and this and that. And it was a picture of what I now know as Magritte, uh, son of man with an apple in front of his face. And I remember thinking, like, boy, that's idiotic. Like whoever is involved with that, that's a stupid thing that no one should bother with or pay attention to, end of story. And then uh, fast forward a handful of years, I remember seeing the same painting uh, when I went to the museum as like, you know, early, late late middle school or early high school. I remember just being intrigued by, uh, I'm wondering, I'm getting my museums mixed up between the MCA and the Art Institute, so forgive the minor art historical twist here. Uh, but being in the galleries of the uh, Art Institute of Chicago and seeing Magritte's time transfixed, uh, which is this unbelievably beautiful uh, photorealistic dreamscape of, you know, sort of bourgeois reality erupting in its scenes, and she was so transfixed by the work and thought, oh, I'm going to be an artist. <laughs> and that didn't work. <laughs> okay, well, we'll blame it on the Belgian. Um, yeah. You say it didn't work. Um, you you did go to USC to study fine art and studio yes. art. Yeah, so. I had an aspiration to be an artist and I realized uh, I didn't want to be an artist, but I really uh, got my energy from hanging out around them. But I was, I was not one of whatever they were. I was something else that was an ecosystem participant. Uh, a lot of credit uh, would go to Uh, Many of my sort of undergraduate professors, particularly Bobby Connell, who's a sort of legend in the L.A. street art scene. Um, So when I was a uh, kid, I was in his drawing class and he used to tease me. You know, he liked me, but he would tease me hard in class. And so uh, probably in about October, November, uh, he came in and said, boy, you know, I'm so proud. This drawing one class. Everybody's making so so much, uh, you know, progress in their work, uh, except for Mike. Mike still sucks. But everybody else, wow, you know? <laughs> wow, very candid. Uh, he took me out postering with him. So I would go hang out in artist studios and talk to them and help budget the supplies that were being bought and explain what they were doing to the outside world. And I realized there was a whole lot of that 
uh, activity that I was drawn to. I remember even talking to a buddy of mine and sort of say, oh, crit is coming up. And I said, oh no, crit, I love crit. So for those you know, are listening to this podcast, traditionally on you know, Fridays, uh, students pin up their work and everybody sits and talks about it. And it was everybody's least favorite day, except for me. And it was my favorite day of the week. And towards the end of college, I sort of thought, huh, maybe I need to focus on the part of this that I'm any good at or enjoy. So I wound up uh, sort of pursuing graduate education uh, in contemporary art history, uh, you know, thinking and becoming a museum curator, a university professor, sort of exploring intersections, art, technology, media. Well, did you grow up in Chicago? Yes. Okay. Yes, I grew up in Chicago, uh, but both of my parents had grown up in Los Angeles, uh, and aunts and cousins and things, so I was deeply family tied to LA, I've been going there since I was a kid, uh, so it felt sort of like the second city for me, uh, it's like a natural mm -hmm. spot to uh, pursue college. But then you came back to Chicago for your master's. Yep. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, Chicago for a master's, uh, and in Virginia uh, for a PhD. And then from there, uh, Smithsonian for a pre-doc fellowship, and then uh, Davis Museum at Wellesley College, where I was a visiting professor and uh, like postdoc museum curator, so Mill and Funkel postdoc. Gotcha. What was your doctoral thesis on? Um, <clears throat> so uh, the artist named Barry LeVay, uh, he's a sort of same generation as Robert Morris, Bruce Nauman, uh, Richard Serra, a lot of kind of postmodern, um, like science inflected end of the universe of no ability, beginning of, you know, chaos world. Uh, Robert Smithson is probably the best known, you know, Smithson's entropy uh, for folks who are thinking about that same circle. The LeVay has his own very, in my opinion, like interesting evocative take. Uh, wound up getting published as a book, uh, Barry LeVay, the, the uh, was it the aesthetic aftermath? The title changed slightly from the dissertation of the book. So it's the sculptural aftermath in the disc and then the aesthetic aftermath in the book. Um, and yeah, it was sort of the first uh, foray into deeply reconstructing uh, an art historical moment um, and the process of turning that uh, dis into the book. I almost walked away uh, from my postdoc in the middle of it because I was getting uh, pulled at to interview at McKinsey and BCG. Uh, so right after I got uh, my book accepted, which is a very hard thing for a postdoc to do, uh, the day after I got that news, I was supposed to start a PhD to management consulting bootcamp at BCG. Yeah. I did not, <clears throat> to be completely uh, honest, get offered either of those jobs. Uh, decided I wanted to just go be a professor anyway. You know, the whole thing was got interesting little foray. Uh, and then I went back to my day job for not as long as I had planned this thing. I just wanted to ask you, um, during your time as a curator and as a professor, um, did you enjoy those roles? Yes. I loved mm -hmm. uh, professional, you know, every job comes with its own set of like headaches and limitations and doesn't turn out, you know, uh, to entail the freedom, which I realized was really what I was after. Um, but I loved every minute of being a museum curator. I loved every minute of being a professor. And the kind of path forward was to me a lot about sort of testing the limitations of these things. So it's that it's like if you care about ideas, for example, the museum provides one amazing kind of laboratory, but it's limited in its own way. You know, sometimes I would uh, say that the museum is sort of stuck in this art museum, is stuck in this funny place where you, you transfer the domain to science. And there's a clear demarcation between a laboratory and then a museum, which is mostly a vehicle for public kind of communication of settled information. Um, 
And a, a contemporary art museum especially uh, is trying to serve both of those functions at once. It's trying to be a vehicle for research that is also about communicating to the public. And for me, it was getting trip up, tripped up over its own feet a lot. And so, you know, I always thought, oh, I'm going to be more on the academic side than the museum side anyway, you know, the postdoc and ending. I'm not really look at additional museum jobs, uh, only looked at uh, academic, you know, professor research jobs. Uh, and that's sort of how I wound up there. Um, and I found basically that, you know, you can have incredible uh, freedom in the academy, but the, the freedom winds up existing only at uh, two inch depth. So that workflow uh, is just so characteristic of the academy. Yeah. So they can um, get a taste of where things might be, but it's a, an impossible uh, mechanism for building things. Gotcha. So gotcha. Part of what sort of pulled me, I'll say, to the other side of the balance sheet uh, where this conversation may be going. I met my wife, uh, who's a consultant, she's brilliant, I love her. And uh, I was, you know, we're busting my butt as a junior faculty member trying to fill out some grants. And she said, Mike, let's do this like kind of thought exercise. You know, how much is this grant for? How many other people are applying? What do you think your chances are? How long did you spend? You know, et cetera, et cetera. We basically worked out that I was making about $25 an hour as a grant writer. And she said, Mike, maybe you could just get a different job and then you could just work and spend $25 on whatever you were going to spend that grant on. I thought, huh. <laughs> so. Um, the is to become a, a visiting fellow at Metal Labs. Yes, a visiting researcher. So it's not, it's not a fellowship position. It's like a research affiliation. Um, so I, maybe I'll like uh, walk through uh, some of the stuff that we've skipped over just a little bit and kind of fill in the blanks from where sure. we left off where we're kind of right now. Okay. So uh, museum curator uh, in uh, Wellesley College Museum, a big headline project I did uh, was this video game exhibition. It was the first museum show uh, worldwide giving a video game designer. Had a lot of awesome publicity. You'll see a kind of piece of it. Yeah over there that was an installation uh from this kind of infinite recursive video game it was, uh, the game worlds of uh Jason yep. Warrior. Yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 um and that uh put a different kind of bug in my ear about the power of turning the sort of like erudite uh interpretive tools of the art museum art history etc uh onto objects that people voluntarily like and care about and pay attention to i saw um just the uh, the scale of working in that uh, you know the possibilities of working in that in that modality um, and began to bring that uh, <clears throat> cross pollination between industry and research uh, mindset with me, um, nice. which can be more welcome in the sciences than it is in the humanities, and I'll leave it at that. Um, but it was percolating in my brain, um, so. Uh, Went to uh, University of Arkansas. I was very blessed to have a wonderful three-year uh, position there. Um, and when I got there, I wanted to really push this sort of curatorial as research mode. Um, and there was an artist who I wanted to do a project with uh, for a long time. So it was Maddie Davis, a uh, New York performance artist. I did this incredible piece uh, where his father uh, was killed. And so he ran, he's like an ultra elite endurance runner. Uh, from Chicago to the middle of Pennsylvania over the course of three weeks looking for the airplane crash. Oh my goodness. Totally chilling work. And um, when I got to Arkansas, I had heard that there were rumors that the CIA uh, was operating these secret training bases in the forests. Uh, and I thought, oh, this is too, you know, like this is too good to not pull on this thread. 
so you know, bought a book, you know, began doing some archival research. It's like, there's something here. So I called Maddie and I said, you know, uh, there is a list of one uh, artists I have who are like secret airplane research endurance genre. So I have a project only you can do. Please come do this with me. So he said, yes, we've worked on it for two years together, uh, did a huge amount of research, field work, and eventually discovered one of these places. So uh, oh, wow. Miles, the Arkansas we, National Forest. Yes, we found a uh, thing that was cordoned off uh, with barbed wire uh, with a bunch of ruined uh, electrical equipment and a windsock pole right where a witness uh, had told us to look. It was wow. unfreaking believable. Wow. Uh, so the artist sourced a bunch of material. We did a project in Arkansas. We did another one in the gallery in New York. Uh, made a publication, which I sort of brought along as a show and tell. Uh, so this is available at Printed Matter. Um, and it is a sort of series of documents, essays related to it. There are some just unbelievably nutso conspiracy things uh, that I found that I wrote about in here that are all 100, so far as I know, 100% true, but too strange to be believed. Um, and we created this unbelievably beautiful publication. Artist, uh, Ian Grau is a designer at Yale. Um, that unfolds like a murder board. So wow. you put it up on your wall and <clears throat> pin the different pieces to be able to kind of reconstruct the journey. So I'm a big uh, fan of these sorts of projects where the kind of interpretive text is a creative component. The creative component has a scholarly component and being able to sort of turn an object around and see the multiple faces um, is something that I find uh, unites a lot of my work otherwise, which looks very different. So. We, we should we should send you guys to New Mexico, Area 54. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> we'll see. There, uh, there's more stuff here. So I like <clears throat> these are one of the sites that I didn't get to go visit, but it's tied up in all of this. Uh, there are uh, urban sites uh, connected with this crazy iron contractivity, one of which uh, was a uh, only parking meter factory east of the Mississippi happened to be in Arkansas and was, according to many, many people I talked to, doubling as a site of manufacturing off the books M16 stocks. Wow. Because the CIA had access to every part but the firing stock. So they just started, you know, a bunch of boys in Arkansas started making them in the back of the parting meter factory and just selling them to the CIA. Amazing. Wow. That's really extraordinary. Yeah, so I just keep doing that one, honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot there, for sure. Well, you've done a, um, a, a fair amount of writing. You've written a number mm -hmm. of articles, a number of yep. books. And just to, for those who are listening only, you're wearing a T-shirt that has a, a lot of text. Right. This is a, uh, I, yeah, you know, as I said, you got to explore the project. So this is actually not my writing. Um, okay. This is my favorite artist. Uh, his name is Thomas Willis. He's a lifelong dear friend you know, took uh, photos of my wedding, that kind of thing. Um, and he makes work out of sort of pieces of text that can be moved around. Um, so this is actually uh, related to, I think one of my favorite pieces that I've seen, you know, in the art world in a very long time. Uh, he brought a, uh, you know, group of paintings to a crit. Again, we find ourselves back in a crit scene. And, uh, you know, the students are talking about them. Oh, they're original, they're heartfelt, they're, uh, inauthentic, riveted, like whatever. And then at some point, uh, somebody says, oh, there's a new, new person in the back, who's that? And Thomas says, oh, that's my stenographer. My stenographer? Yes. Who is that? He's transcribing the class. Everything we say, everything we say. 
And this moment in this text document where these people go from just like inhabiting a world to having a butterfly net dropped on top of them and they're conscious that they're specimens under observation is one of the most interestingly like extraordinarily self-reflexive moments in anything I've ever seen. So then uh, Thomas has represented this work as like staged actors doing a reading from a transcript. He's sometimes one of the other people rather than playing himself. I'd, I tell him it's like a diamond where it's like it doesn't have any color, but one little pin of light from the paintings gets the system going and it has this glow to it. It's invisible, but it glows. It's an amazing part. It was acquired by the Whitney Library, MoMA Library, a bunch of other interesting places, and also plug uh, great art bookstore printed matter in New York. Oh, nice. That's a, uh, wow. Uh, when you first mentioned working with text, I thought of Cy Twombly, but this is a very different approach. Yeah, this is uh, whatever the opposite of Cy Twombly is. <laughs> right. um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the article you wrote um, regarding Jasper John's 1961 work, Map. Yes. <clears throat> so uh, this is, uh, there's a scene uh, at the beginning of Faust where Mephistopheles comes in, who's the devil, uh, and Faust is a professor. And uh, Mephistopheles says, you know, oh, can I, you know, come in and talk? And, you know, Faust says, oh, no, 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 I'm a good Christian. I would never do that, you know, but I'm a, a professor. So I love an interesting conversation. It's one of my favorite scenes. So uh, <clears throat> that moment for me, uh, where you get sort of pulled by your own native scholarly curiosity out of the lane you're supposed to be driving in uh, happened for me around the article that you're talking about. So I was teaching in Arkansas and I had a student ask me, uh, excuse me, I put out uh, Michael Heiser's double negative. It's really important, beautiful, interesting land work. It's, you know, the largest work of art uh, when it was created in 1971. Right. And so, um, Virginia Duan had a lot to do with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was on Bingo. Okay, yeah, this is where I'm going. A uh, student asked me, uh, who paid for that? And I remember just being like flattened by that question because I had no idea, right? It's just not something that's talked about at all. Um, and that sort of art crossover commercial stuff is in the back of my mind. I'd spent a lot of time putting together grants for this. I had even crazier projects I can tell you about in the second issue. I made a demo album with a bunch of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, real underground rap stars from Atlanta with Juilliard friends in New York. It was like, it was getting very abstract. So the question of how works of art got paid for was feeling like a burning uh, problem in the present. And then the student just served it to me on a platter, like a single elegant dish with one thing in the middle and a giant serving array. Who paid for that? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know who knows, and that means there's probably some kind of a story here because it's so obviously important and so obviously not a part of the current understanding of what these things are. So I started pulling on that thread and wound up uh, getting sucked down a rabbit hole of stories of how uh, works have already been financed. Um, and in doing that work, I stumbled on another you know, conspiracy story uh, Jasper Johns and Leo Castelli and tax fraud and you get a lot of interviews from the 80s and things where people would mention that as though oh yeah well that was kind of an open secret you know that tax fraud stuff which as a is a historian you can like repeat that accusation but it's hard to build anything with it. 
So I just thought, okay, let's try to go back to the beginning. So I um, went to Leo Castelli's papers uh, at the Smithsonian uh, Archives of American Art, um, some of which have only been recently unsealed or transcripts and things, um, other parts of which you know, only exist in the paper files. And I just went through everything and I'm photographing stuff where you're not like 100% supposed to, but it's like, it's not like examining works of art, right? So right. the restrictions on photographs, it's like some amount of proprietariness around visual materials or whatever. Um, but you, it's when you're looking at ledgers, you're not like looking at a ledger. You have to compare things on more than one page. Right. And without the medium of the iPhone, this is impossible to do in an archival setting, it just is. So uh, photographing everything, trying to track stuff, and there's clearly things happening between him and the patron, Robert Skull, that just make no sense. Skull buys a painting and returns it the next month. He buys a painting and then gives it as collateral to purchase three other paintings, two of which he's gonna sell two months later. There's just there's too much moving around for all of this to be uh, seemly. Yeah. So I uh, just tried to lay out every painting that I could see show up more than once and why it had moved in the way that it had moved. Mm. And one thing stood out like a uh, just burning needle in an otherwise darkened haystack. I remember I texted my wife when I found it and it was just like nine fire emojis. <laughs> like, here it is. So uh, <laughs> in, this is the transaction that I had to piece together, but let me just tell it to you in chronological order. So uh, 1962, uh, Leo Castelli uh, takes a no interest loan from his biggest collector, Robert Skull. Uh, nine months later, March of 1963, there's a memo in Castelli's files from the Art Dealers Association, which is this, like, you know, professional interest group about how to uh, comply with the IRS's new rules around valuing uh, works of art. Step-by-step mm. -step instruction sheet that read upside down is a guide on how to cheat. So <clears throat> whatever that is, two months after that, June 63, there's another transaction. Uh, Leo Castelli's, uh, excuse me, Jasper Johns's map, uh, biggest, most expensive piece he's ever sold to uh, Robert Skull for $15,000 and the repayment of that $20,000 loan. And they're written right next to each other on the ledger. Hmm. <clears throat> then it disappears out of the paper archives, but there is an oral history transcript that was unsealed a handful of years ago that's publicly available uh, and keyword searchable. So it turns out he's willing to tell this interviewer the rest of that story, which hmm. is that uh, Skull donated that piece uh, to MoMA in August and Castelli valued it for him. And he valued it at $150,000, which was 10 times what he had sold it for in June. Yeah. <clears throat> so I have a uh, wonderful colleague named Greg Allen, uh, sort of arts reporter based in Washington, DC. So I published uh, something in, a law, in the Columbia Journal of Law and the Arts about that single isolated incident. Uh, my colleague, Greg Allen, has built this into a even more brazenly grotesque abuse of the tax fraud, uh, tax uh, enforcement regimen uh, through fractional gifts and Skull is even keeping the thing and probably chunking the donation to knock mm. it back its many years in the future. Um, it's available on Art News's website. It's a totally unbelievable anecdote um, that illustrates why things got into the positions that they were. 
And why this was such a stomach dropping moment for me, you know, you find a good sort of uh, scheme story, it's like fantastic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it was, you know, as a art historian, I was sort of taught to think about things at the level of the art, right? It's like, why is Jasper Johns doing the things he's doing? Why is Andy Warhol doing the things that they're doing? Well, you know, it's a reaction against the overwrought uh, hero heroism of abstract expression. Okay, fine. And maybe that's true. It is true. But on some level, it's like a why question and not a how question. Yeah. So it's like, oh, you think about Warhol. He's or Johns. He's so important. He's the youngest, you know, artist collected by MoMA. He's in there more often than anybody. You know, he's important right about. And there's a lot of great writing. You know, he's, he is an important artist. I'm not trying to debate that fact. But it's like, how did he become important? Yeah. And how, it turns out there's a lot of Johns in museums because for this uh, scheme to work, you have to donate his stuff somewhere, right? So all of a sudden, it's like I had been studying with frosting and there was a whole baked cake <laughs> that I hadn't even considered at all. <laughs> and realizing that to me as a researcher, you know, the future is out there and why not try to use some ability to um, uh, understand cake and frosting in service of doing things that have, you know, conceptual rigor or value mm -hmm. or interest or something, um, rather than being stuck $25 an hour as a rent. Yeah, <laughs> well, well done. Uh, and it's great unearthing, a great discovery. Usually the uh, financial row that Robert Skull is associated with was with Rauschenberg. Mm -hmm. When yeah. they <laughs> Where, about artists making money and subsequent sales. Yes, 100%, right? In the beginning of the secondary market. So the, the book that you're referencing is still under review, um, but is sort of look at some of the, what I call like the house stories. Like, you know, how did John's become important? How did Michael Heiser come to exist? Other other chapters on media, art, sort of return to painting in the 1980s, um, and a conclusion uh, about the Astor Gates that may have to get rewritten because I'm sort of interested to see what happens in the COVID world. <laughs> gotcha, yes. Well, um, your research interests, uh, Mike, um, you describe them as being the intersection of creativity, technology, and commerce. Mm -hmm. And so um, what's in store in the future for you? <clears throat> so I... Uh, when Arkansas was an extraordinarily generous uh, employer, and one of the things that they uh, had offered to do for me was to let me stand for early tenure. So the semester before I was supposed to stand for early tenure, I just had this crisis of conscience that says, uh, you know, being an academic researcher purely is not, um, you know, it, it's not going to be the fulfillment of what it is, whatever it is I've been trying to do, it's not this. Um, and was very lucky to be able to formalize this relationship uh, with the Meta Lab, who sort of provided a, a shelter, a port in a storm, uh, said, you know, stay, be a visiting researcher here and do this interesting work and find some way to do it, whatever that means for you. Um, and was, again, very fortunate and blessed to find a really wonderful program called the Sloan Fellows Program. Uh, so it's an accelerated one-year uh, MBA at MIT that I graduated from yesterday. Congratulations. Um, thank you very much. Uh, class is amazing. Uh, you know, 100 plus students from 40 different countries. One of my classmates is a former defense minister of Armenia. There's a lot of interesting people from all kind of corners of politics, uh, culture, uh, you know, yeah, finances you would expect, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so through that, I uh, am going to be joining a startup uh, next week and finding a way to uh, <clears throat> be able to drive in both the uh, call it academic and the entrepreneurial lanes and consider nice. them as opposite same sides of the sphere. 
and then uh, research-wise, um, yeah, let's talk about some of those interests. And yeah, then... sure. So I have uh, another book that is 90% done uh, on the intersections between, again, art, media, politics, culture, commerce, et cetera, in China. So it's uh, six different chapters that look at different uh, episodes from the recent sort of political, technological history of China uh, through the lens of an artist so that Westerners can begin to understand the scale of some of these things. So I went over on a research trip uh, with a friend and had this incredible meeting with this artist named Hu Jianming, a pioneering media artist, television sculptor uh, based in China. Uh, I got to see this incredible career's worth of work. Uh, you know, it's- Based in Beijing? Uh, Shanghai. Shanghai. Oh, okay. So in the process of trying to understand uh, the work and the world that produced it, I uh, came across this unbelievably startling fact which is that basically television sort of uh, is a cultural phenomenon began in the 1980s in China, uh, not the 1950s, and so we're used to thinking of in America. Uh, and through the course of the 1980s, it went from basically zero to one out of every seven people on the planet was a television-watching citizen of China by 1990. Wow. <clears throat> the scale and the speed of things happening. To me as a historian, it was almost like turning the telescope and you get to watch the cosmos be born in real time and you understand how messy everything is and not predetermined. And there was uh, definitely an attraction to me to watch a system uh, form and change itself in real time and you know, talk to potential uh, collaborators and uh, being a part of that change. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, did you also spend time in Beijing or just Shanghai? A 10-day trip to Shanghai, though I have a trip uh, to Hong Kong and hopefully also Beijing and possibly even Taiwan as well, uh, planned. But, you know, COVID has put everything... COVID-dependent, yeah. I would really recommend you spend time in Beijing. I actually find worldwide some of the most inventive artists coming out of Beijing. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> The uh, Shanghai uh, location was, so I went uh, with a good friend, an, another uh, buddy in the same circle of artists, actually I had work by him right there, that uh, mm -hmm. little was Dave Olson, uh, Dave Tang Olson, uh, professor at Wellesley College, collaborator on a bunch of different things. Um, and the two of us were trying to do a sort of curatorial project over there, in part because that was the city that his family was from. So we were uh, touring a bunch of different sites and possibilities and just made it into a Shanghai-focused trip. Um, my Mandarin is basically zero, and having uh, somebody who's, you know, family much more fluent than I am to sort of take me around to places, it, it, for me, it would have been undoable without that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a big, big leg up. So, uh, well, that's fantastic. When do you anticipate um, that work being finalized? I mean, it's dependent on travel. Dependent on travel. Um, one more chapter left to write uh, in, within the next year, year to two years at the absolute latest, but hopefully within the next year. Great. So, uh, hopefully next year, two books coming out, the China one and the art market one. And small plug, uh, actually one just came out, uh, I think it would be out on Monday. Um, it's on uh, experimental classical music. So Philip Glass, Steve Wright, Richard Serra, that sort of same circle of 1970s artists. Given the pace of academic publishing, I was fundamentally done with that book in 2017, but it's coming out. You know, it's the sort of rate in which all that, these things kind of happen. Um, so yeah, I'm, you know, a couple ahead, but uh, I'm excited to have that one come out. As a real That's fantastic. I look forward to that. Mike, thank you so much. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive and Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.